Morning, everybody. So last week uh, we were in Hebrews chapter 5, made it down pretty much through verse 10, and so we'll pick up um, there and uh, head on in uh, possibly uh, into uh, chapter 6 as well. The first part of chapter 5, we learned even more about Jesus as our high priest. Uh, this is going to be a topic that uh, the writer will continue to um, uh, unpack and, and to develop over the rest of the book. Uh, and um, he wraps up uh, this section in, in the beginning of chapter 5. Um, in verse 8, he says, Although he was a son, that is Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'd like to tell you a whole lot more about Melchizedek, but you just wouldn't get it. You're sidetracked, and you're not paying attention. Now, that's not exactly how verse 11 goes. I thought you were talking to us. <laughs> Rhetorically, that is somewhat what the writer was trying to do, though. He changes direction so quick and so fast, it does kind of make you wake up, right? I saw a lot of faces that were like, what the heck is going on? That's, that's what the writer was trying to do, to just have a wake-up call. There's going to be some debate as to what he wants to say with this wake-up call, but there's a sudden shift of gears, and once again, we have this back and forth as we've seen other times in the books between theology and exhortation. Exhortation meaning encouragement to do something, to make a decision, to, to get off of your current status quo. Alright? This, this just forcefulness of, the, of a pastor you might think that's just wanting some sort of response, some sort of a change from what's going on. So let's look at what it really says in verse 11. But you can kind of hear a little bit of that change in tone about this, that is this order of Melchizedek thing, which he kind of just drops that name a couple times. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. It's not that much different, right? For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Now, one of the 
things you need to start thinking about now. As we go through this section, which is probably going to, I don't know if we'll get to the whole thing, but the section itself probably goes through uh, chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, and the thing in the back of your mind that you need to be thinking about is who is the audience for this particular part of the message? We talked about this a number of times. Um, the, the thinking is, the understanding, as, as you would expect, is a, is a mixed group, primarily those of uh, Jewish background, but a mixed group in the sense that uh, some are believers and, and some are maybe considering becoming believers. They're, they're certainly affiliated with this group. Um, some might argue that they might actually be what we would think of today as church members. Of course, we know that church membership isn't necessarily the same, same thing as being a member of, of the true church, right? You can be a church member, um, make some sort of profession, but, but truly only God knows whether that was genuine or not, right? So some, uh, some commentators, in order to properly frame the verses that we're going to be discussing in verse 6, go all the way back to this section in 5.11 and, and following to say that the focus group, some commentators would say the focus group, based on this little section, is non-believers, Jewish non-believers. There are a number of reasons that they might say that, but one is this basic principles of the oracles of God. To the Jewish believer, the oracles of God would be what we now call the Old Testament. And if you think of the teachings of the Old Testament as the building blocks, perhaps you might say even the alphabet of, of what God wants to reveal, um, we know that the elements of the New Covenant were prophesied and, and introduced and, and heavily foreshadowed and in some places blatantly explained in the Old Testament. Uh, so just kind of have that in the back of your mind that, um, that some would say that, that already uh, the, the writer is addressing those people on the fringes that uh, are affiliated with this group of believers uh, but maybe haven't quite made the decision for Christ. Others, of course, would say this is absolutely directed to believers, that this is a wake-up call to people who have um, not wanted to go beyond their basic uh, understanding of Christ. Uh, we might say a person who maybe is a, a new Christian but was never discipled, right? Who never uh, had someone come alongside them. Maybe they they weren't exposed to any good teaching. They didn't have a, a, a friend in the faith to guide them along and to see, you know, how does Christianity apply to my life today? Um, as you think through how practical some of Paul's letters are, um, it seems to be written to that type of a population, right? There's, you know, Paul's constantly trying to teach 
these new believers what is it like to 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 walk as new believers to walk as new christians to um you know to not think it's okay to date your mother-in-law you know the those basic things paul was always trying to teach people because they were new so some people would take you need milk not solid food as as identifying that sort of group now you might think that the author having said this you need meat not solid food would eventually would rather um uh logically next go to the point well we're going to have to backtrack right this is what a typical teacher would do you know you didn't do so well on that last test so we're going to have to go over it again we're going to have to start back from square one we're going to have to regroup and 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 learn it again because it hasn't it hasn't sunk in yet that is not that is not what he does that is not what the writer does um, he just goes on in verse 1 of chapter 6 therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity he's like you need milk you're not ready for solid food but buckle up we're moving on that's, that's essentially what's being said uh, you uh, you just need to, to pay attention that's the story let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings the laying on of hands the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment let's look at this again let's go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance of the dead works I'm sorry repentance from dead works of faith toward God and instructions about washings laying on the hands resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment now although um, I haven't I've got some some general understanding and I'll bring you along in my own confusion here uh, um, I've got some general understanding of of these latter verses that we're going to go through in chapter 6 but one of the um, proponents of this view that the audience or at least the portion of the audience to which these remarks are being directed at the moment uh, one of the strongest arguments appears to be in in these first two verses um, by the way you can look these up and if you look at the study notes uh, which are footnoted um, uh, the references by Guthrie are from the NIV application commentary that uh, I've used a number of times through my teaching it uh, usually comes from a, a very conservative uh, point of view um, I've also um, uh, appreciated um, John MacArthur's uh, commentary um, on Hebrews uh, John MacArthur um, is one that uh, he's the one that really feels like this audience is is not believers uh, which is I would say probably put him puts him a little bit in the minority um, and some of his points I, I couldn't 
really be persuaded about, but I think this is one of his strongest arguments if you look at these verses in the following way. When, when the author says, let's not lay again a foundation of re repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and instructions about washings and the laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, those are all concepts that were taught in the Old Testament. These do not, as a group, it's hard to attach all of those as a group to New Testament believers. And let's, let's look at these. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Is that an Old Testament concept? Repent from sin. That is an Old Testament concept. Uh, when John the Baptist came along, the Gospels had not been written, right? Jesus had not saved anybody yet. But what was his message? Repent. Who was he talking to? Old Testament folks, the people of Israel. So repentance from dead works is very much an Old Testament concept. Is faith toward God? Yes. What about and of instructions about washings? Now the King James uses the word, I think, baptisms, which is not the typical word. Um, the, the word that the King James translates baptism is not the word that is typically used when we're talking about believer baptism. Okay. Better is this, and I think, does New Americans say washings? Mm -hmm. um, and the, the ESV says washings as well. Of instructions about washings, well, we know all about the ceremonial washings that the Jews had to do, right? Uh, when you walked in the door of the average Jewish household, there was a basin there because you were going to need to do various washings for you know, uh, cleansing and uh, ceremony as well. And so many washings that you hear about in Leviticus. So this teaching about washings was definitely an Old Testament concept. The laying on of hands, we picture in our mind laying on of hands for like ordination, right? And that type of laying on of hands was certainly done in New Testament days. But typically the laying on of hands here was, was when the priest laid the hands on the sacrificial animal and basically transferred your sins to that animal. So that concept is an Old Testament concept as well. And resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Um, throughout the Old Testament, we hear about uh, punishment, and there is teaching about the resurrection as well. Uh, this new day, we learned about that all through Isaiah. So I think this is one of the, the uh, stronger points uh, for thinking that, that the audience in question is is uh, is a Jewish audi audience and uh, people who have maybe not really developed the full impact of what they should have already known. Uh, let's see. Let us leave and go on to maturity, says the first part of verse 1. And verse 3 picks up, and this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age of, to come, and have then fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. 
these three verses um, are very likely uh, verses that uh, some of the most controversial in, in um, Hebrews and, and probably the whole Bible. At first glance, it seems to say if a Christian falls away, then they can't be restored again, and they're done. The theological concept here is apostasy, falling away, backing away from what you had once professed. There's some strong words here. Words like impossible. Crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is pretty strong language. I came across, depending on how you carve it up, six to seven different views by evangelical commentators on how we ought to understand these passages. I don't understand all six or seven views. So therefore I'm not going to even try. But I will mention some general points. Since the Reformation which was basically salvation by grace, right? By faith. It started with Martin Luther. There have been these two great views of understanding salvation. We've talked about these. We've talked about the Calvinist point of view. We've talked about the Arminian point of view. The latter basically emphasizing the free will of the believer emphasizing whosoever will may come the tricky little backside to that argument is if you're so free to accept Christ then you may also be very free to reject Christ as, at a later point and so denominations that would come from this tree including some of our holiness friends uh, this concept of backsliding of falling away of losing your salvation our Nazarene friends would, would look at this passage as saying it is one supporting that it is possible for a believer to have faith in Christ to be a Christian and then because of not holding on to that truth or persisting in that belief to backslide so far as that at some point they would no longer be a Christian. I don't believe that. There is certainly a, a, a principle in, in, in biblical interpretation that many commentators have rightly applied to this verse that when you have verses that are obscure and hard to understand you don't let those verses totally change your understanding of verses that are clear to understand. You let the things that are clear interpret 
how you view the unclear ones. We won't go into a full explanation of the security of the believer of why we can have faith that, to use a cliche, once saved, always saved, but there really is a great defense to that position, and if you are compelled by what I think is a very compelling argument to that position, you have to use that as a lens through which to view these verses that, depending on how you read them, might say the opposite. Does that make sense? Praise God. (laughs) So if it doesn't say that, then what does it say? Well, let's take another run at it. And I've seen a couple different views. John MacArthur's view would be that this is still talking to the Jews on the fringes. Um, Guthrie, who wrote the other commentary I've been using um, in the majority, uh, those two, um, would seem to say um, this is, he uses a theological term which I won't use, but basically the person who may have uh, made perhaps a shallow confession of faith, maybe a church member type position within that body, but their subsequent actions and their, uh, would call into question the authenticity of their true connection with Christ. And this highlights the position of probably every pastor in the sense that they can make some educated guesses about the authenticity of a person's relationship with Christ, but but only God knows the authenticity of, of what they did uh, to accept his his grace. Um, so there's some there's some agnosticism you might say about what we can truly know, you know, as we make these judgments about other people. But um, so those are kind of the two views. Either, either people who have maybe been accepted as believers, uh, but truly aren't, or people who are considering uh, uh, Jesus and have been heavily exposed to what it means to be a Christian because of their relationship with the body, but haven't made that decision. I'm sorry for beating that too much, but let's go. For it is impossible in the case of those who once have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the word and the powers of the age to come. It seems like that group of phrases is referring to a Christian. It sounds Christian-y, doesn't it? It sounds very... It sounds like those would be terms that you would apply to a true believer. But if you think about it, it is plausible that they apply to these other two groups, potentially. People who have once been enlightened. Were these people enlightened about the claims of Christ? Yes. They were in a body of believers. They were getting taught good theology. Uh, They had been enlightened. They you know, it had been unpacked for them what the mystery of the gospel was, that that Jesus came for them. That was 
So it is possible that they were enlightened. What about tasted the heavenly gift? We don't exactly know what the heavenly gift is. Sometimes you might think that it's referring to the Holy Spirit, but since he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit explicitly in a few words, um, probably not talking about the Holy Spirit. It could be the... Well, some people would say salvation, but how can you taste salvation? True. So it's probably not salvation. Um, but you could certainly taste the fellowship, the warm fellowship of a group of believers. Um, you might have seen someone get healed. Uh, you might have seen evidence of the Holy Spirit in other ways, maybe speaking in tongues or something. Um, you may have heard songs like you never heard before. Uh, there may be a lot of heavenly gifts that they might have been exposed to and have had a taste of who have shared in the Holy Spirit. So that's a tricky one. When we think about uh, some passages say partaking of the Holy Spirit. Um, and MacArthur says that the word used for partaking really means association, not possession. The same word, it gets tricky. The same word is used like when the disciples were partakers of the Lord's Supper. Well, they were, I mean, they were recipients of that. I mean, that it's, it seems very close. But then there are other passages where I understand what you're saying, where it's, it's like, like the ESV says, having shared in the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, at first glance, you would think possessing the Holy Spirit. Apparently, they're saying, no, it doesn't have to mean that. Tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Again, they had been exposed to scripture. They had been able to look at that um, through the lens of, of Jesus having come. Maybe they already had the gospel of Mark by now. Um, the powers of the age to come. Again, maybe they've seen manifestations of the Holy Spirit. It says, and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So the concept is if you are so close to making this decision for Christ, you've been open to the claims of Jesus, you've been hanging out with Christians, you've seen, you know, this is, they're in probably the heart of a pagan culture and you've experienced how different this group of people is. You see how they take care of each other. You see how they support each other. You see how they share their material things with each other. You see evidence of the Holy Spirit. You see joy. You see perhaps healings. You see all this. And if after all of that, you still aren't able to make a decision for Christ... In other words, if you fall away from that, are you ever going to be that close again? Are you ever going to have that opportunity again? No. You're not. And that's what it seems to say. If they've fallen away, can you restore them again to repentance? No. They, they were so close, and it's the opportunity that's lost. It's not the, the theoretical, can they change? It's 
let's be real here, people. If you have done all that and you're still not going to make a claim for Christ, then it's just not going to happen. That seems to be the way to take this. It says, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. In other words, having the full amount of information that they could get, ultimately, they side with the Jews who crucified Christ. Ultimately, they make that decision. That's what it means. Then we have this agricultural example. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. there's been a lot of writing about this particular verse too but the way I take it is that you really can judge the fruit of a person's belief if you see the fruit of the spirit from this person then likely their profession of faith was was authentic if you see this person has fallen away they've gone back to their old um, way of living they haven't been changed by anything that's happened to them you don't see evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life then they're not of the faith let's just do a couple more verses and we'll close verse 9 though we speak in this way yet in your case beloved we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation so here's the shift, and, and this is where most commentators will start to agree that no matter how you take this, because there's a, a third view that says he really is talking to believers, but yet he knows that none of these things can happen. He knows that you can't fall away. He knows that this isn't going to happen because... We feel sure of better things. In other words, this doesn't really apply to you. Verse 10, For God is not so uh, not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the exhortation here, the the encouragement here may be twofold. Like any good pastor preaching to a couple different sections of his congregation to compel those on the fringes to make that decision because this may truly be their best and only opportunity but to also encourage everyone else of the seriousness of continuing to hold fast to what they believe. To realize that this really is the real deal. Dig in, 
we're gonna there's there's more stuff to learn there's more to come and so I want you he says to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope to the end how could you say the full assurance of hope to the end if your hope to the end was in doubt it doesn't really sound right right so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises trust and obey right it's you believe and then you act it out trust and obey and that's the call here and in this way it's not that much different than um, uh, Paul saying imitate me or James saying not just hearers but also doers it seems to it seems to kind of fit all right we better pause there stop your recording